As I was uh, prepping this week, I was kind of overcome by what a privilege it is to get to share God's word with you, either with people who are coming and like seeking, like what is this God all about, what is this Jesus all about, and for people who are hungry to know God more deeply and intimately. Something mysterious happens when we submit ourselves to the word of God, like God works in and through preaching, not, not merely to inform us. In fact, that often happens, but that's not the main point of preaching, to inform us, but to transform us and, and for our hearts to be opened more to the work of God. It strikes me as significant that the early church was never described as the group of religious rule followers. And they weren't known as the dogmatics, fanatics, or any kind of these fun names like that. They weren't nicknamed masters of Bible trivia or the moral police. These were not nicknames ever given to the early church. Even before the early church was nicknamed Christian or Christians, that was a a nickname given to them by people outside the church because it, it meant little Christs. Even before that name, the church was known as the way. Yeah, before the Mandalorian. I know, it blows your mind right now, but like, yes, this is the way. This was what the early church was known by. It's how they described themselves, and I think that's significant too. That's not just some name that someone else gave them. The way, which they would have thought of this in Greek, was hados, that's that word, and it means way, it means road, and it can mean journey, and all of those things, of course, are semi-synonymous with going somewhere, that's what our faith is, is rooted in. That's how people self-identified in the first generation of Jesus followers was the way. The very way the early church defined themselves was as a people following Jesus on the road with him, on the journey with him. It's not a thing of like cross a line, sit back and relax, learn a bunch of facts and do church stuff. It's being on the way with Jesus, on a journey with Jesus. What defines us is not what we know or how good we are or what rules we follow. What defines us as followers of Jesus is that we've listened to the invitation to follow and that we've set out on the road with him. The reason Jesus seems to have preached to people was to invite them to join him on the way. He declared a new reality of the kingdom of God breaking in, a new world in which he would forgive our sin and make us new so that we might join him on the way and find eternal life at that. And how do we respond to Jesus? How do we follow the way of Jesus? Well, one of the things we've been talking about as a church the last few weeks is is we listen. In fact, last week, if you missed it, we practiced a a practice called Lectio Divina, where we just listened to the voice of Jesus in the text. There was no sermon, which you're probably like, darn, I wish I wouldn't have missed that one. Uh, But uh, yeah, we just listened to the text. We listened to a passage of scripture where Jesus was talking. One of the ways that we follow him on the way is we open ourselves to a new way of being in the world to being converted, but also like always converting. Redeemed and always reforming, trusting in Jesus, but really growing in trust as we go forward. 
This evening, we're going to revisit a teaching of Jesus, a, a particular parable that we started exploring two weeks ago. And in that sermon two weeks ago, we focused on what it might mean to listen to Jesus. Today, I'm going to read the same parable, and we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to look at more of the details of the parable. So I'm going to encourage you, because it's starting to warm up, and we're from the Northwest, so this is hot almost. So just, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, and you can, of course, follow along. I'm in Mark 4, or you could follow along by imagining this scene. This parable is, is, a, is a story. Imagine the setting Speaking of Jesus, it says, He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea, and he sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and he was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up, and it choked it and yielded no crop. And other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, even a hundredfold. And he was saying, the one who has ears to hear, listen to this. Now, as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, you know, to you it's been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, everything comes in parables, so that while seeing, they might see and not perceive and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, you know, like, don't you understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear immediately, Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. And in, in a similar way, there were the ones who the seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no firm root. No firm root in themselves, but they're temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones whom the seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those who are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word, and they accept it, and they bear fruit 30, 60, even 100-fold. Lord, I pray you would open our hearts, not just our minds, to what it is you're trying to say. Even though these things are fairly straightforward, we still get confused and tripped up, and I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, cut through our confusion and our 
misguided curiosity and help us to be curious about the right things, about the things that you're trying to show us and say to us. And I pray that you would make us good soil for your seed. Amen. You may be seated. So as you know, this passage, because I just said it before I read it, was, it's a parable. It's a parable which is a mashup of these two Greek words. It has a prefix, para, and then balo, which is this word to throw. So para means, it's where we get the word parallel. So you put like two lines like this. And, and, and so uh, parable, parallel throwing, is, is like it's throwing down a story. It's throwing down a story next to a person's life or to a person's worldview. And that's how parables work. So you're just walking up, you know, and, and uh, you know, if I say LL, you really ought to live like this, boom, 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 and you're just like, what, who are you to tell me? And like, we get defensive just because we're human beings and no one likes to be told what's up. And so sometimes, you know, let me just go on a walk and then you throw down a story and you tell it slant and the parable is a way to kind of get under our defenses and make us think about life. And how does my life line up with this story that Jesus is telling me? How does it line up with this parable? How, if, I, this, if he throws down this story next to the story of my life, what is he trying to say to me? What questions does the story ask of my life? What comparisons does it make? And this is really important uh, because this is assumed with all Jesus' parables because it was a, a standard rhetorical technique for rabbis and teachers of the day Parables were told not just for information or for a funny story, but they're always told with the main purpose of getting the hearer to respond in some way. So we're supposed to respond somehow. That's, that's the point of a parable. All right, so one of the things I'm just gonna keep training myself and training us in is that parables are not meant to be strict allegories where every detail in the story has some esoteric meaning. We don't for example, take a parable like this one with the sower and the soils and the birds and the Satan and the thorns. We, we're not supposed to read that story and try and apply our farming techniques that we know and try and figure out, was the farmer even good? Like, why did the soil go on rocky ground and all this kind of stuff? Not, we're not supposed to really do that with this kind of story. We're, we're not to like guess, I wonder what kind of seed it was. Was it wheat? Because we know that wheat does this, and, or was it corn, or you know, did they even have corn? And we're, we're not supposed to worry about like what kind of seed it was. We're not supposed to wonder about like how much water did they use, or you know, what, what kind of farming technique. Just, that's not part of reading a parable in the ancient world. And we do that a lot as Americans because that's how we read things. We want to know everything. But in parables, like the ones that Jesus tells, the details are just the anchor points. The details exist to help us identify with the story so we can respond. So let's take a look at what is revealed in the story. There's a sower. Sower goes out to sow. Sows seed. We don't know exactly who the sower is, but in the larger context, we can infer perhaps that it's God. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But maybe infer that it's God. We don't know. This, the sower is not named in the story. And then there's the seed. Well, what is the seed? How would Jesus' original audience hear a story about a sower sowing seed in Israel? 
And I love this. This really shows Jesus' genius and his ability as a good teacher. So, so check this out. To Jesus' original audience, seed was associated with the remnant of Israel or the survivors of Israel after the exile in Babylon. Seed represented to first century hearers the people of God. And prophecies like Isaiah 55, the one that Shannon read just a few moments ago, a point toward a day when God would cast his seed in Israel, in the land, and it would raise up a remnant or a new people of God. And it might help to know that Isaiah, Isaiah 55, that Shannon read, Isaiah was written at a time when Israel was in captivity. They were in exile. So Babylon had come into Israel, ripped them out, the people of Judah ripped them out and taken them to Babylon, like in Iraq, like a long way away. And Isaiah the prophet receives vision from God to do two main missions. God works in and through Isaiah to to one, to tell Israel, hey, here's why you're in exile, just in case you were wondering. Like, I rescued you from, uh, from Egypt and warned you about worshiping other gods and you kept worshiping other gods and I'm not like, it's not that big a deal, like I can handle, I'm not, I'm not jealous in the sense of like boyfriend-girlfriend jealousy, but what happens when you worship these other gods like Molech and Baal and you start sacrificing your children and you start uh, abusing minorities and you start mistreating women and so, this is what happens when you start down the road of idolatry. And that's why you're in exile. So that's one of the reasons of the prophets was to just give voice, like why is this happening to us? Well, let me tell you. It shouldn't be a surprise because I've been telling you this is what's going to happen for a long time. But the second thing that God tasks Isaiah with is I want you to bring hope to these people. And I want you to tell them that I'm going to rescue them from exile and that there's going to be a remnant, that there's going to be a seed, that there's going to be, that my promise to David to rescue the world through this people, through this line, I'm gonna follow through on that promise despite your disobedience. (laughs) And when that happens, it's going to be like a farmer taking seed and casting it into Israel, and it's going to grow a new people of God. Okay, so that's, that's the history behind the seed metaphor. Okay, I'm getting goosebumps. That's pretty cool. Okay, so keep in mind, by the time that Jesus of Nazareth in the first century AD is saying these teachings and doing the things that he's doing, like the people in Palestine oppressed by the Roman Empire are literally on the edge of their seat, well, figuratively, right? Uh, and, and they're just waiting They're waiting for God to move, for the seed to be sown. Now, we get to Jesus' genius. Through his proclamation of the arrival of the kingdom of God in chapter one of Mark's gospel, moving on to the gathering of a new community of how many? 12 disciples, like the 12 tribes of Israel. His demonstration of power over the forces of evil, his life-giving power to heal and to even uh, set people free from oppression. Jesus is saying that the time you're waiting for has begun. The moment you have been waiting for has arrived. The seed is being sown. 
God is truly sowing seeds of his new kingdom. He's forming a new people of God, and the seed, the point, of, it, it, the, the seed is the good news that Jesus himself, he's the climax of the story of God. And he says, those who have ears to hear, listen to this. Which brings us to the only part of the story that a first century hearer would hear as a variable, right? The soil. There's four types of soil listed in the story. And as we're going to see, the four soils describe four different dispositions of the hearer, four different um, states of a heart. And by identifying ourselves maybe with one or more of these soils, we're gonna come face to face with the conditions of our own hearts. Let me read that part of the text again. Listen to this. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came up and ate it. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately the Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. The heart of the person described in the first soil, the one that's beside the road, they're blessed. They've listened and heard the message of the kingdom. They've been shown grace. They're on the way. But why aren't they fruitful? What prevented the seed from taking deeper root in their heart? They seem to hear, but they don't take the word in deeply. They're hard. The word doesn't penetrate. The birds come and take away the seed before it can even take root. And this action, the birds coming and eating the seed, is attributed to the Satan, the evil one, who loves to distract us and play on our insecurities and our past trauma and our festering wounds. And, you know, sometimes we, we see Satan, like, we think of him in, 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 like, black and white, like, oh, man, Satan, he must want us to hate God and to become satanic worshipers, and pff, I'm not falling into that trap. Um, me, like, probably not one of your biggest um, temptations, but maybe, I mean, we should have a talk, but, like, probably not, right? Like, we think, oh, we're pretty safe from Satan. I'm not going to become a devil worshiper. Right, but see, he's a little more subtle than that. Uh, people aren't, um, aren't, aren't born with hard hearts, right? Like, all Satan wants to do is for us to harden ourselves, to become cynical, jaded, untrust, untrusting, angry. Oh, that's, the, that's his sweet spot. No, people aren't born with hard hearts, but if we're not careful, if we hold on to our grief and our anger, our insecurity and our fear, we're gonna put up defenses and your, your psyche is right to do so. We're gonna put up defenses to protect ourselves from the world. The problem is, is that you can't choose when you're protecting yourselves from harmful things and from good things and intimacy, and beauty, and true love, and God. I used to wear a level A hazmat suit when I was in the Coast Guard strike team. We would do all of this kind of chemical 
um, clean up. The nastiest stuff could not penetrate. That suit had its own SCBA inside. You're just self-contained. But man, in California sun, it got hot in there. And one thing you also could not get is water. <laughs> Nothing penetrates it, right? So it, it, it's, it's a little bit like that. Sometimes we get hurt. We carry trauma. We carry grief. And when we don't deal with it, we put up these defenses. And you know what else can't get in? The love of God. And some of you that are in intimate relationships, right, you know that you have a hard time making lasting attachments maybe, maybe being as close with your loved ones as you'd like to be. Not to get all psychologizy, but that's, that's what's happening here, is this hardness um, to God's seed. The second type of soil is described as rocky soil. I, when I was a teenager, I did landscaping for 14, 15, 16, 17 years, old, my, my, those ages of my life, and um, I would do a lot of work in the Tacoma, Gig Harbor, Puyallup area, and all of that is like glacial outflow ge- geography, and you just dig like a few feet down, and you're in like rocks everywhere. I always think of that type of rock. That's not the rocky soil we're talking about in first century Palestine. In first century Palestine, there's limestone, uh, under almost everything, and, and, and what happens is, um, in certain areas, there's enough dirt built up on that limestone to actually plant crops, um, and sometimes when you have some drought season or uh, when it's just a typical dry summer and the wind blows, certain sections are blown off, and the dirt builds up over here, but not over here, and so some of the seed, my mental picture now, is seeing some of the seed is, is on this, this crop area, but, but there's not as much dirt in some areas. That's the rocky soil. Not like little gravelly rocks, but like a sheet of rock. And this is the person who receives and listens to the word of God joyfully. Like, I'm received, this is good news, the seed, God's doing his thing, the kingdom is here, Jesus is rad, uh, I, I'm, I'm receiving this in my heart. As some of us make changes in our lives. These are the ones who are on fire for Jesus, we might say, in, in kind of modern American Christian parlance. They are on fire for Jesus. They get involved, they serve, but they have no deep roots. And their hearts are open to the new thing, but they fail to grow deeply. And so their faith is external, based on how we feel in the moment, but it doesn't have much sticking power. And when the shininess of the gospel and the new community of God kind of loses its luster and you start to realize, hey, these people are also just fallen people like me and that person kind of ticks me off or I can't believe they said that and that person part of the church, well my goodness. Um, when, when that shininess loses its luster, this passage describes two situations that can cause a person with shallow roots to stumble and the first is this Greek word uh, philipseos which means something like trouble or pressure or affliction, and I think what this word sort of gets to is this is the person who's all in for Jesus, but when economic hardship hits, or, or illness, or something more enticing like Bellingham on a summer day, right? Uh, where their, their faith sort of shrivels and like, I'm not all in during summer, <laughs> or whatever, or winter if you're a skier, or like, dang it, why do I like sports in every season? It's hard. Um, uh, they have no grounding, and they have become fans of Jesus, but not disciples of Jesus. 
So that's one of the, the nuances of rocky soil. The second enemy of the unrooted heart is persecution, and Mark is specific in this. It's persecution because of God's word. Because of God's word. Again, it's easy to proclaim Jesus and to be all for Jesus when it doesn't get you in trouble or make you unpopular, but Jesus tells those who follow him, hey, you're probably at times gonna be hated. Um, you'll be persecuted. You'll have conflict with the world that is organized around other things than the kingdom of God, and that's just gonna happen. So the one with shallow roots will kind of switch loyalties like a chameleon when following Jesus means having different opinions than, than the world or the media or our friends uh, about things like money or, or, or sex or power or politics. Um, uh, we might hold views that are unpopular or deeply offensive to the zeitgeist or the spirit of our age and the place that we live. And I always like to remind myself and us, like if we're doing the Jesus way right, like no political party is going to fit us. <laughs> we're, gonna be, we're gonna be offending everybody, <laughs> right? Right and left, there's, there's, there's equal critique on all the sides, right? So, so following Jesus uh, on some of these where the rubber meets the road issues are, are gonna cause us some uncomfortability. And the ones with the shallow roots say, you know, it's not really worth it. So how are your, your, your roots? How, how are you growing? Are you feeling like you're becoming fruitful or sort of shying away on some things? That's the second soil, the rocky soil. Well, the third soil is infested with these weeds, these thorny weeds. Jesus says, these are the ones who have heard the word but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. I love that catch-all. What other things? Just other things. The desire for other things. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of things. Uh, it, 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 they enter in and they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Right? The world we live in is full of trouble. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's full of trouble. Um, try following Jesus in the world and you may even invite trouble on yourself. Recently, I was practicing the prayer of examine um, just by myself at home, and in that prayer, you start with thanksgiving, and then you do a, a, an inventory of the last 24 hours, and you, you, you try and notice areas of consolation, which is where you felt God was working in and through you, and areas of desolation, areas when you reflect on the past 24 hours, Places you felt distant from God or places you felt like, oh, I totally missed it or I totally screwed that up. You know, kind of making a list there. And anyway, so I was doing this practice and um, I, I, just, I was just listing, like the list is daunting of things that were just weighing heavy on me um, from building searches to, to ministry concerns to just, just life as a pastor and a husband and, and, and a dad and a friend. Um, there's lots of things going on in life. And this line between, you know, I try and be like really honest when I journal. So the line between like being honest with my feelings and being worry, worrying about them, it's, it's, I, it gets fuzzy for me sometimes, right? Um, one person said, if you can worry, you can pray. If you can worry about something, you can pray. Because worrying is just basically reciting your fears and anxieties to yourself. I do that a lot. And prayer is a subtle shift where I, I, I recite those worries and anxieties to a God that I trust cares about me 
and cares about those things. And it's amazing the difference it makes when, when we open ourselves up to the possibility that God hears us, that he knows us, and even after he hears us and knows us, here's the most surprising part, he loves us. And he wants us to be flourishing, fruitful people. Sometimes that fruitfulness can come in the form of wealth. And in this parable, we have a warning. It is really important to say that there is no condemnation in Scripture or in this passage against being wealthy. There's zero condemnation for being wealthy. It's the deceitfulness of riches in this parable that trips us up. Money and wealth used in the service and, uh, to bless other people and serving God and enjoying life to the fullest, those are good things. Those are things that God is like, I'm down with that. That's a good use of wealth. The issue is that we can so easily be deceived into thinking that our wealth is our savior, that our money equals our happiness, that our financial security equals our life security. And, and when that happens, when we're deceived into trusting our wealth for our lives, then we've turned our wealth into a sort of God. And the gospel is choked out by the weeds and the thorns of the world. Because once it becomes our God, then we will do almost anything to protect it. The way of Jesus is to be wise and generous, to live well, but also to lay down our lives for other people. It's not dangerous to have wealth or, or to have a plan in life, but pay attention that if your financial goals prevent you from being generous or, or from tithing or those basic obedience things to Jesus, then, then it's, it's a matter of the heart, and that's always something we need to be looking in the mirror about. But there's a third warning here in the weeds. Not only are we to be aware of the deceitfulness of riches, but also the desires for other things. And I guess maybe it's a phase of life, but also as I listen to the pulse of this church. And I'm not just talking about people with kids, because I hear it in some of you 60-plusers too. There's a busyness. There is an overextension. I think it can happen to any of us, whether we're young or old, even if we're children, we can sometimes carry that sense of being overextended. Maybe it's financial, but usually it's about our life pace. And we can get overextended with things like church even. We can get overextended with recreation or with work or with any other activity that we are part of. And our schedules can choke us. And you know, we can be doing lots of things, even great, meaningful things without following Jesus. And that, when that starts to happen, it feels like weeds choking the life out of our life. And I just ask you sort of rhetorically, because I sort of know that in some ways we're all in there. Are you overextended? Are you feeling overextended? Let me just share something I've been thinking about lately. I don't think being overextended is always a function of doing too many things or having too many things. I think that sometimes, at least for me, and some of the people I talk to, being overextended sometimes is a function of me trying to separate the different parts of my life. And so sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking like, I've got my sort of spiritual life, which is my churchy life, and maybe 
if you have a quiet time routine, that kind of is in the spiritual life. And, 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 and probably your family life has some of that spiritual aspect. Like, those are good and holy and wholesome things, right? But then we've got work, or school, entertainment, family dynamics, extended family dynamics, all the things. And we try and, like, maybe we don't even try. They just end up in these different buckets and these different compartments. And what it can feel like is I'm not like thriving in my spiritual life because I'm only doing this stuff in church one hour a week or I'm only, you know, but all of these other things are choking me out. I feel overextended. And when we compartmentalize our lives, thinking that Jesus belongs just in the church and maybe family and a few other little things like that, but everything else is other then that can be extremely overwhelming. But as we often talk about at Lettered Streets, like our vocation is holy or can be. Our friendships can be holy. Our exercise should be holy. We've talked about body stuff a lot. I got my butt out and I exercised three times this week. Just, that's accountability. Because your body matters. That can be a holy thing. Um, Entertainment can be holy. Sports, art, music, it all has a place in God's kingdom. And I wonder if we'd be less harried or hurried or less feeling overextended if we began to see how we could invite Jesus into those other aspects of our lives. Invite him into our, our, our soccer practice or into our work meeting that we have coming up that we're stressed out about or into... Uh, how we neighbor, how we husband or wife or friend or, or son or daughter, am I creating all of those things into like adverbs? I don't know. But like how we do all of the different buckets in our life, we integrate them. I wonder if that's part of the solution. Well, finally we read about the good soil, the fruitful heart, the person who receives the seed, who receives Jesus, stands under his grace and authority, we don't produce any fruit in our own strength, but fruit is born out of that relationship with Jesus. And, and I think at this point, it's really important for me to just point out something that that's sort of seems obvious, but isn't at all. It seems on the surface that this parable is about failure. <laughs> because if you assume that you have a bag of seed and you cast it out, on, and there's four soils, it sort of seems like 75% of the seed is like bad. It's fruitless. It's horrible. Like, this is a parable of failure. But I, I just don't, I don't see it that way. There's nothing that indicates 25% of the seed landed on the bad soil and 25 on the rocky. You know, there's nothing that says that. I think Jesus is warning us, not condemning us. He's saying like, hey, this is a diagnostic tool to see where you might be at. This is not a prophecy saying this is where you'll end up. Or if you are in one of these soils that aren't very fruitful, this isn't saying this is who you are forever and ever. I think it's a warning to us, and that is so good, such good news. Because I think if we're honest, like, can't you see yourself maybe not today, but at some point in your life, haven't you been part of all of those soils to some degree? There are areas of our lives where we probably identify like, like I can, I can see parts of my life right now in all four of these soils, right? 
And maybe you recognize, though, as you're listening to this parable with fresh ears, you know, I'm a lot harder to the word than I used to be. Hmm, wonder what that's about. Or maybe, maybe you're, you're recognizing, like, I've, I've really been in a season of fickleness, like, yeah, my roots don't feel as deep as they once were. My faith is shaken, or, I, you know, I'm just kind of bailing out when the things get hard, and I don't know, I wonder what that's about. Or, or maybe you feel the weeds of the overextended life. You're like, all that integration stuff Chris was just talking about, that sounds like great, but how do you do that? Because um, I'm feeling stretched in 14 directions. What can we do? Well, this warning from Jesus, this parable, has nothing to do with techniques, has nothing to do with tactics. It's not about, hey, church, just decide to be better soil. This isn't a, a, a tool used to shame us or to get us to try harder. In fact, I'm falling back on this quote I know I've quoted before. It's Thomas Chalmers who wrote in the early 19th century, and he said, we can't choose what we love, but we always love what seems desirable to us. We're only gonna change when something proves itself to be more desirable than what we already love. So I'm only gonna choose Jesus if Jesus is revealed as better than the things I like to sin with. And then he writes, this is what the Spirit does in us. The Spirit makes us taste and see that the Lord is good and then we can desire Jesus more and more and more. So I want you to hear in this passage, remember Jesus, okay, how does the gospel of Mark begin? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. Gospel means good news. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. This parable means it's in Mark. It's gotta be good news. So what is the good news? That Jesus can change our hearts. That he can transform whatever soil state we're in right now and make it good soil. And so I encourage us this week, if you want a to-do step or an action step, fine, so be it. Respond to the good news. So maybe this week you go back through this parable Maybe if you really want to dig in, on Monday, you do the first soil, and you just sit with that rocky, or that, that, that hard path soil, and say, like, am I, God, am I hard to you? Am I resisting you in some way? Maybe he says, no. And you're like, cool, well, that was a good conversation. Or maybe you're like, yeah, I'm sort of, I feel myself resisting here, and you can just ask in that moment, Lord, can you help Till me up a little bit, soften me. I'm holding on to some anger or fear or doubt, you know. Have a conversation. Maybe on the second day, maybe on Tuesday, you wrestle with the rocky soil piece and you're like, you know, God, am I, are we okay here? How are my roots doing? I don't really resonate with the rocky soil. Is that, am I missing something? Or maybe you're like, oh, Lord, you and I both know it's been hard and I'm feeling like bailing or, you know, you, like, have a conversation. You could do that. Jesus encourages it. Maybe on the third day, you take that, that next soil, the, the, the choky thorn one, and you say, Lord, let's look at my sketch. Am I overextended? Like, what is something supposed to give here, or can you give me grace? 
to integrate these parts of my life? Is there something here that doesn't fit with my calling or who, the season of my life, or, or can we make it work? And I want to encourage us to not forget to sit with Jesus and ask him to show us, Lord, where have I been fruitful? Where have you worked in and through me to do anything good? Where have I been flourishing because of you? I think you'd be amazed if you just pause and think about that type of thing, how encouraging it is. I mean, I look at this room, I, I know some of you better than others, but I could probably give each of you a little pep talk on how I see God working in and through you. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Like, God is at work in our community, and he's at work in the world, and so sometimes we just get so discouraged because we just don't listen to that. We don't allow ourselves to, to hear a compliment from Jesus. He's for you. He works in and through. He wants you to be fruitful, and I bet you if you look just a, a millimeter below the surface, you could recognize some ways that, that you're fruitful because of him. Rejoice in that. As we prepare to, to transition to the table, I just want to encourage us to, uh, to take a moment of silence, and, and maybe there's some areas where it just popped out for you, like, yeah, I'm I'm being unfruitful in my life and it's because of this resistance or because of this rebellion or because of this pain. And, and I wanna just encourage us in this moment of silence to, to offer that up to God and to ask for healing.